Thank you, Rhiannon. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you again. My name is uh, Matt Howell, and I'm glad that you are hanging out with us this morning. Uh, what we have been doing for the past few weeks, this kind of season of Easter tide, is we have been uh, trying to tease out, flesh out some of the implications of the resurrection. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, if he's making all things new, then what are some of those new things we are being brought into? And we, we've seen that he brings us into a new creation. He gives us uh, a new self. He gives us a new command to love one another. He gives us a new spirit. And this morning, I want to show you he even gives us a new name, a new name. I don't know if you have seen the off, off, off-Broadway uh, musical Hamilton. It's a little obscure. You may not have heard of it. But if you have, uh, you will know, if you've seen it, you'll know that one of the main themes of this musical is Hamilton's drive, his, his hustle, his work ethic. I mean, he is, after all, young, scrappy, and hungry. And all throughout the, the, the um, musical, they're, they're just constantly telling him that he's just nonstop. He just goes and goes and goes, and he works and he works and he works. And in fact, you have people that tell him he's, he's, he's always writing like he's running out of time. Why does he always write day and night like he's running out of time? He's just going and going and going and going and going. In fact, you have uh, his wife constantly telling him to take a break. Take a break. Just get away with us for the summer. Let's go upstate. And he can't. He's got too much on his plate. And so he, she's constantly saying, take a break, but he keeps going. He's working his fingers to the bone. And even himself, uh, at, at, towards the end, he says, um, I hadn't slept in a week. It was, I was weak. I was awake. And he's just, he's just grinding, going, hustling, working, working, working nonstop. The reason I bring that up is because there's a character in this passage that Reed just read for us that is likewise nonstop. He's just going and going and going, and um, he is trying to reach this goal, and his power of speech is unimpeachable. And the character in this particular section of Isaiah is this character called the Anointed One. It's the Messiah himself. We, you know, as, as believers in Jesus, we believe that this is Jesus himself speaking. And, and look what he says in verse 1. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. He's speaking to his father, and he's saying, for, for the sake of my people, for Zion's sake, I won't stop preaching, I won't stop praying, I won't stop speaking. Some commentators say even the language there implies he's working, he's laboring until what? He wants to see something happen in the life of his people, and that's what I want to try to look at with you this morning. What is it that Jesus is working nonstop to see in his people? Two things I want to show you. He is working to, uh, for us to become attractive and secure. Two things, outwardly attractive because we are inwardly secure. So I want to just look at these one at a time. First, um, attractive. Jesus is, he will not stop talking, laboring until what? He tells you, verse one, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. He's saying, I will not rest until my people have a righteousness that's like a, that's like a bright torch in a dark cave, something that is, that is radiant. Now, the word righteousness, like, like a lot of words, it has a range of meanings. Uh, but at its root, uh, righteousness has to do with, with your commitment to writing relationships, 
Righteousness is, is at its root a, a social thing. In, in fact, um, uh, all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see the words righteous and wicked as being uh, kind of juxtaposed against one another. So you look at the Psalms, you go to the book of Proverbs, and it'll say, well, the wicked do this, but the righteous do that. And, and they're kind of set against each other. And there's an Old Testament scholar, professor named Bruce Waltke, who tries to summarize what's going on there. And he says this, essentially, the wicked are people who advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. In other words, what it means to be righteous is your willingness to inconvenience yourself for the benefit of your community. And consequently, what it means to be wicked is, is your, your, uh, your willingness to inconvenience your community in order to benefit yourself. What I want you to see is that righteousness is public. It's relational. It's, it's social. It's not your private morals. It's not your private you know, personal prayer life, it's inherently public, so much so that even in verse 2, Isaiah goes on to say that your righteousness will be visible. Look at verse 2. He says, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. This is saying Jesus is laboring, he's working for the community of Jesus to become so, so radiant, so bright, so, so visibly uh, beautiful. Even he uses that language. Look at verse 3. He says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. That's what Jesus is laboring towards. Uh, Keith Miller wrote this book in 1983 called The Scent of love, like the smell of love, the scent of love. And the cover art on the front is really bad. And with the bad cover art and with the title, it looks like a really bad romance novel. Uh, this, is, this is not in print. You can, I have a used copy that I'm reading right now. It's just kind of sitting out in our living room. And I'm just always worried when we have friends come over, they see that like, what in the world is Matt reading? The scent of love. Uh, but it's a, it's, it's a book about the early church. It's fascinating. In fact, I included a little excerpt at the beginning of your bulletin. I just want to read you what he writes. It's pretty fascinating. He says this, the early church grew not because of the spiritual gifts of Christians, such as the gift of speaking in tongues, and not because Christianity was such a palatable doctrine. To the contrary, it is about the most unpalatable doctrine there is, but because they had discovered the secret of community. Generally, they did not have to lift a finger to evangelize. Someone would be walking down a back alley in Corinth or Ephesus, would see a group of people sitting together talking about the strangest things, something about a man and a tree and an execution and an empty tomb. What they were talking about made no sense to the onlooker. But there was something about the way that they looked at one another, about the way they cried together, the way they laughed together that was strangely appealing. It gave off the scent of love. The onlooker would start to drift further down the alley, only to be pulled back to this little group like a bee to a flower. He would listen some more, still not understanding, and then start to drift away again. But again, he would be pulled back thinking, okay, I don't have the slightest idea what these people are talking about, but whatever it is, I want part of it. Now, what would it look like for us to become attractive to the watching world to such a degree where they would say, okay, I don't know what in the world they're talking about in there. I don't, I, I, frankly, I find what they believe a little weird, maybe a little offensive, but I'm, I also find it strangely compelling. 
and I want to be a part of it. What would it look like for us to become a community like that? Attractive in that sense. Uh, Well, I mean, you could answer that question a million ways. You could talk about this for hours. I'm going to give you two ideas, two suggestions. Ways that you can become attractive to the world is that you go in and you draw in. We go in and we draw in. What do I mean? But by we go in, I mean as Christians, when you see things falling apart, we don't move away, we don't avoid, we're not repelled by, but we go in. So you see a neighborhood falling apart, we go in and we seek to uh, bring healing. You see a, a family life that's falling apart, we go in and we, we enter in with, with kindness and with compassion, or you see somebody's personal life falling apart, their emotional life falling apart. We, we go in. We, we, we go in with empathy and with, with kindness and with patience and with our prayers and our tears. Point being, most, most religious people, when, when they see the demands of something that's broken, it's, it's, you almost know it's, it's too demanding of your time, it's too demanding of your resources, and so at best what religious people do is just kind of throw money at it from a distance, kind of like dropping care packages on a very broken situation. But, but as believers, we're called to go in, to, to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of our communities, whatever that looks like. That's one way we go in. And here's the second way, is that we draw in, we draw in. Uh, I was thinking about this imagery that Isaiah uses here of, of a light, of a burning torch. And there is a way for light to be oppressive, a little bit like the light that's shining on me at the moment, um, where, where, you know, if, if, I, if, you, if you shine a spotlight in your face when you're waking up, you're going to close your eyes, you're going to shield your face with your hands because light can be oppressive. And, and yet, that's not the imagery that, that Isaiah is using here. He's using the image of like, when the sun comes up after a day like today, where it's just gray, it's, it's rainy, it's just kind of yucky, and then like tomorrow or whenever, the sun's going to come out and it's just going to be warm and bright, and that, that light is inviting, it's refreshing, it's life-giving. This is the same idea that Jesus kind of hooked into with his Sermon on the Mount when he calls his people the light of the world. He says, um, uh, uh, shine, shine, what does he say? I, I wrote it down. Let your light shine before others so that other people might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. To shine light in such a way where people look at that and, and their response is to give God glory. It's a response of, of worship, of delight. Now here's the thing. There are different um, pockets of the modern church that have responded to our current cultural moment in such a way as to say, as the church Uh, We have been weak, we have been spineless, and we have got to be strong, we've got to stand firm, we've got to fight back, and so we've got to get louder, we've got to get stronger, we have to announce what we believe, we have to uh, uh, announce what we disagree with out in the world, we've got to fight, we've got to be aggressive. And I totally understand why somebody would say that, why they have that instinct, I totally get it. If you think about it, uh, being aggressive helps you win lawsuits, but it does not help you win people. And I think Madeline Lingle in this quote that I included in your bulletin, again, I, I think she, she has a response that feels a little bit, um, that resonates with me a little bit more personally. She says this, 
we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. If you spend any time with people that are, that are aggressive, critical, religious people, you just feel worse. You just feel condemned around them. And if you spend any time with somebody that's actually been intimate with Jesus, you can't help but feel somewhat better, feel encouraged, feel enriched, feel uplifted in some way. That's what Jesus is laboring to produce in us and all of us. And you might say, well, Jesus has a long way to go. And that's true. He does. But thankfully, he's the one that's working. He is the one that is working and laboring for us to become radiant, for our righteousness to go forth in such a way that people would say, that is beautiful. I I don't know what y'all believe. I finally, uh, frankly, I find some of what y'all believe kind of weird, but I'm drawn to it. You are disadvantaging yourself for the sake of the community. Attractive. That's what Jesus is laboring for us to do. Here's the second thing. Outwardly attractive because he's also laboring for us to become inwardly secure. And and I get that from this amazing verse in verse 2. He says, And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Think about what a name is. A name is in some ways just synonymous with your being, with your identity. It's the name that people use in their head when they think about you. It's the name that they use when they talk about you. It's the name that they use when they talk to you. Your name is in some ways your identity. And, And God is saying the Lord himself will give you a brand new name, brand new identity. You think about the past year and a half or so, 2020, 2021, there have been so many companies and bands and products that have changed their names in an effort to not be uh, racially stereotyping. And uh, so, so there's all these you know, different examples. Uh, Aunt Jemima was changed to the Pearl Milling Company. The Dixie Chicks are now the Chicks. Lady Antebellum is now Lady A. Uncle Ben's Rice is is changing their name. The Washington Redskins are changing their name. I'm sure there's lots of uh, different reactions to all of that. My point is I just want you to see here are these companies that have said we have a name that is associated with something hurtful or something insensitive, something ugly. And so we need to change it. We need a new name. We need to to rebrand ourselves because what we're doing is hurtful to people. In a similar sort of way, the Lord is looking at us, and he's saying, okay, you have a name. You have an old name that is associated with something ugly and hurtful, something that is associated with rebellion and injustice and sexual perversion and idolatry and self-interest. And so I need to, I need to rebrand you. I need to give you a new name from my mouth. And what does he name us? Look at verse 4. This is amazing. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, in your land married. Your old name used to be forsaken, but now God says, here's your new name. Your new name is my delight. Your land was named desolate. It was just this kind of barren wasteland, but now it is married, meaning fruitful, full of life. He is saying, this is who you are now. It it is so easy to allow the names that other people give you to be the thing that defines you. 
that shapes your very psyche. I have a good friend of mine who recently told me that growing up, all growing up, his mom called him an idiot. Why'd you do that, idiot? You think about that name and how that name has so horrifically malformed him. And you know all the names that you've been called growing up, names that you don't want to actually believe that you gave somebody power to label you, but yet in some way they labeled you fat, stupid, whatever. It doesn't even have to be negative things. You can be labeled as success, the golden boy, golden girl, so much potential, which there's, you know, there's, there, have you ever thought about how oppressive it is to be called, you have so much potential? You take these names that other people have given you and you let them define you. In fact, you, you even, in your worst moments, you can define yourself. In your moments of, of shame, you can look at yourself, oh, I'm such a loser, such a failure, such a screw-up, I'm an addict, I'm whatever. In your own confusion, you can name yourself over and over and over, and yet the Lord steps in and he says, no. They don't get to define you. You don't even get to define you. I do. I'm going to give you a new name from my mouth, meaning since I'm God, since I'm, I'm, I'm the king of the universe, my name for you gets to override and supersede all other names. And you know what your new name is? It's no longer failure. Your name is now my delight is in you. Your name is no longer idiot, screw up, whatever. You are now beloved. I think that's amazing. In fact, if, 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 if you are in touch with the name that God gives you, and you live out of that identity, do you know how secure that would make you as a person? Do you know how that would psychologically fortify you if you actually believed that's who I am? I am beloved. Uh, Dick Keys, Dick Kies, I don't really know how you pronounce it. He wrote a book called Beyond Identity. It's a fascinating, amazing book. It has a better cover than the other book I mentioned. And uh, here's what he says. He says, a person with a strong and a true sense of identity, meaning someone who is in touch with the way that God defines them, he says that person will experience peace with self, others, and God. This person will have a certain self-forgetfulness, a lack of self-absorption and self-consciousness. He's saying if you are living out of this God-given identity, you'll, have, you'll become less clingy, less codependent on other people. And then he goes on and he says this, by contrast, the person with a weak sense of identity is painfully concerned with him or herself. This person is keenly conscious of being one who is fragile, unreal, and unsubstantial and feels like a loosely held together collection of roles played to the audience of others' expectations and determined by forces outside of their control. People with a weak identity are apt to be identity-hungry. That is, in relationships with others, they try to find or fortify themselves, whether by bragging, self-assertion, manipulation, or self-pitying withdrawal. Motivated by fear and anxiety, they are like a baby bird in a nest with a huge open mouth pointing to the sky shouting, feed me, make me feel like a person. Isn't that an amazing image? 
this image of us just gaping open, looking around at everybody saying, will you please feed me? Will you define me? Will you tell me that I'm an important person? Will you tell me I am meaningful? And yet God looks at you and says, I've already done it. In fact, my voice is, should be louder than every other voice. In fact, he even doubles down on this reality that you are his delight. L- look at verse 5. Verse 5 intensifies this whole thing. He says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Fifteen years ago, I had the pleasure of being the best man at one of my good buddies' weddings, which uh, is a great spot because you, you have the best seat in the house but you don't have any of the attention on you. Nobody looks at you, nobody cares about you. But you're right there next to all the action. So I'm right there next to my good buddy, and we're at the church, and uh, they're at the part in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the service where everybody stands up to face the, the, the back. The bride's about to come in, and the organ cranks up, and it's either Canon and D or whatever the name of that, the bomb, bomb, ba bomb, whatever. I don't know the name of that song, that one. So the organ cranks up, Everyone stands and turns and faces the double oak doors. The doors open up, and there's this stunningly beautiful bride on, on her father's arm. And everybody's looking back at her, but I can see my friend because my friend's right here next to me. And he cups his face with his hands. His, his face turns red. Tears are, are, are flowing down his face. And literally, his knees, like, buckle. He, like almost collapses. And I lean over at him and I say, dude, pull yourself together. You're embarrassing yourself. I'm joking. I didn't say that. I did not say that. But, um, but he, he's, he was so overwhelmed with just the joy of seeing his bride that he literally is like collapsing. Now, for those of us that have maybe grown a little cynical this is going to sound really cheesy to you, but I want you to know that's the way that the Lord responds when he thinks about his church, when he thinks about you. It's right there in the passage, the very last thing. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Overwhelmed with delight, flooded with joy at the thought that you are his, and you as is, not because you're dressed up and you're attractive and you're looking fancy, because remember, Jesus is working to make us attractive. We are not attractive in and of ourselves. He loves us even though we are unattractive, and he loves us in order to make us attractive. In fact, there's this, um, I read about this story about this renowned theologian, this, this famous scholar, famous pastor, and I don't, even, I don't know if it's true. I don't even know what the, what the person's name is. I just read it in an article, so take it for what it's worth. But the article said that this, this renowned theologian at the end of his career was asked this question. They said, what is the highest theological peak you have, you have come to in all your years of studying the Bible and studying theology? What is the most majestic truth you have stumbled upon? And here's what this person responded with. They said, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. That's the highest peak. Doesn't get any better than that, more majestic than that, more, more wonderful than that. Do you know that that is true? Do you know that you are loved, delighted in, over 
overwhelmed, that God is overwhelmed with delight with you. If you don't know that, how would you know? Here's how you would know. Because this character in this story, the anointed one, the, the, the Messiah, he doesn't just talk about this. He actually comes and makes it happen. He receives our old name, and that's how he can give us a new name. I mean, if you think about, you think about Jesus, who embodied in his person everything that, he, that we are intended to be, attractive and secure. How attractive was Jesus? He, he was so attractive in the sense that people were just, would just flock to him, people that the rest of the world wanted nothing to do with, the poor, the marginalized, the outcasts, the sinners, the strugglers, everybody came to Jesus because he created such a, a, an environment of hospitality and grace and welcome that they, just, they were just flocked to him. The truly righteous one who ultimately disadvantaged himself for the sake of his community. And then you think about how secure Jesus was. I mean, if you read through the gospel stories, you have people that are drawn to him, people that do love him, but you do have people that reject him, the people that don't like him. They're the religious leaders. They, they hated him. And yet, when people, praise God, when people praise Jesus, you don't see his ego inflating. And when people criticize Jesus, you don't see his ego deflating. He is the most steady, stable uh, you just see constant equilibrium. He's the, the most well-differentiated human being in the history of the world. And yet, he decided to have us be labeled, have him be labeled with our name, that he takes upon himself our name. On the cross, he gets the name from verse 4, forsaken. As he is crucified, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, he gets that name desolate. You remember when he's dying on the cross, he cries out, I thirst, I thirst. His soul has become this parched, barren wasteland. His soul is just spiritually dehydrated. He's just, he's just stripped down to nothing. Why would he do it? Why would he take on our name so that he can give us ours? He can give us his. He was despised so that we might be delighted in. He was rejected so that we might be rejoiced in. And when you begin to realize, okay, that name, that new name, which cost him everything and was completely free to me, when you start to live out of that secure identity, that's what begins to make you attractive to the world. Because now you become selfless, you become others-focused, you start to become gracious and kind and hospitable. You're, you're, you're firm in your convictions, and yet you're not aggressive. You're, you're courageous, and you're, you're, and you're bold, and you're at the same time, you're, you're, there's a sweetness and a, and a winsomeness about you. That's what Jesus is working in us, to make us outwardly attractive because we are inwardly secure. But the question really does boil down to this. What is your name? What is the name that you say, this is who I am? How do you fill in that gap? Because if you will surrender to the God of the universe, your name will be my delight. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you name us purely by grace. You get to define us. All the ways that we are tempted to define ourselves, we get to 
demote those things beneath your kind and gracious labeling of us. And I pray that we would more and more yield our spirits to King Jesus and live out of this secure identity that you give us by grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.